Hi, I'm Lowell Taylor. And I'm Dustin McGowan. And we're the host of The R Word, a podcast about reparations in the church in Northwest Arkansas. On the next episode, we listened to a sermon called What to White People is Juneteenth that I gave at Grace Church in June. And then our guests, Betty Wilton and I, will discuss what we heard and what we hope from Lowell's sermon. You can listen to The R Word for free on KUAF.com or anywhere you get your podcast. I'm still not who I'm meant to be. I'm holding back. I just relax, indulge in insecurities. I'm happy to be here with you all. Um, I'm especially happy uh, for the little ones and, and their contributions to today's service. Uh, I'll introduce myself shortly, but I have uh, three small children, uh, so I, I understand. It's a zoo at my house, and so uh, happy to be here with you all. Okay, um, I'm, I'm here to teach more than preach, and as such, I have an outline. I like a good outline. So today, we're going to talk about four things. First, who, who am I? Second, we're going to talk some theory, three practice for how you can join us, and then I've listed my website. Now, these, these letters are small, so you may not be able to see them in the back. You'll get an email to you later, but that says reparationsnownwa.com. And so if you're a multitasker, you know, you, you like to browse the internet during service, then maybe maybe go there, okay? Uh, so let's see. In a speech given to a group of white women on July 5th, 1852, called What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, Frederick Douglass said that the Fourth of July was not for him because it represented freedom for white, not black people. Douglas said, fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that declaration of independence extended to us? Such is not the state of the case. I say it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I'm not included within the pale of glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. So today is Father's Day. Tomorrow is Juneteenth. And I've been asked to speak to, speak to a group of, of mostly white folks about reparations. The R word. Before I do so, I want to address a feeling you may have that neither Juneteenth nor reparations are for us, white folks, because both represent freedom for black, not white people. Juneteenth celebrates freedom for black people from slavery and reparations requires payment to black people for slavery and other injustices. So what to white people who have never been enslaved is Juneteenth? What to white people are reparations? 
Today's text is Exodus 14, 13 to 14, in which Moses tells the Jews that they will see God's salvation. Another word for salvation is freedom. And in John 8, Jesus spoke to a group of Jews about freedom. And the Jews said, we don't need it because we've never been enslaved. Jesus said, you, you do need it because you've been enslaved by lies. In John 8, 32, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Like the Jews, many of us need freedom because we have been enslaved by lies about America, blackness, whiteness, and Jesus. I believe that both Juneteenth and reparations are for us because they invite us to know the truth and to be set free by it. So today I want to discuss reparations in the church in Northwest Arkansas. In the next few minutes, I want to share first who I am. Second, the theory of reparations is outlined by Quan and Thompson in their book, Reparations, a Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. Three, how I have practiced reparations with others in Northwest Arkansas. And four, how you all at Grace can join us. And then I hope to have some time for Q&A if you have any questions or comments. Okay? We good so far? Y'all with me? Okay. So, as you know, as I said, my name is Lowell Taylor, um, as I told some of y'all uh, as before service. I was born and raised in Little Rock, and I came to Northwest Arkansas for college and stayed. I have a wife, Rebecca, and three children. Titus is six, Josiah is four, and Emma is two. I work at a company called The Harvest Group. I study at Fuller Seminary, online, part-time. I worship at St. James Church in Fayetteville. I like to read and run, not fast or far, but I like to run. And I'm on a journey toward racial justice. I find it helpful to liken the journey toward racial justice to running a long race. Today I want to say that many of you are running a long race toward racial justice. And we need each other to run it well. I also want to say that I don't see or want to see you all as competitors. I'm not here to win. Or customers. I'm not here to sell. But as collaborators. I, I, I'd like to be friends uh, and fellow good troublemakers, as John Lewis said. So as we discuss reparations, I hope that you feel both exhorted and invited to run the long race toward racial justice together and well. Okay, so let's talk some theory. Uh, we'll discuss the theory of reparations in four parts. Racism, white supremacy, the church, and reparations. Okay? First, racism. Have you ever misunderstood a problem and therefore made it worse? Anyone? Yeah, I have. Uh, as a husband, I sometimes misunderstand what my wife wants and make our marriage worse. Anyone else? Any other husbands? Once or twice? Yeah. So unfortunately, white Christians have misunderstood racism and we have made it worse. 
We can see racism in concentric circles. Racism is an individual problem that requires repentance. It's an interpersonal problem that requires reconciliation, an institutional problem that requires reform, and a cultural problem, white supremacy that requires reparations. Unfortunately, studies show that white Christians have a narrow view of racism. We see it as an individual and interpersonal problem, so we support repentance and reconciliation. But we do not see it as an institutional or a cultural problem, so we oppose reform and reparations. So we need to widen our view of racism. A question for your table fellowships, your small groups later, is how have you or your community seen racism? Okay. Second, white supremacy. Have you ever understood a problem, but because you did not want to address it, you acted like you did not know how to? Sometimes, my, my son, I'm thinking of my four-year-old Josiah, he understands what I want him to do, but because he does not want to do it, he acts like he did not hear me. He asks, what did you say? I do this too, but I'm picking on my son. So white supremacy is not hard to understand, but it may be hard to hear. So hang with me. White supremacy can be understood as a belief that white people and culture are best that is used to excuse a behavior, the theft of truth, wealth, and power from black people. White supremacy has stolen truth by romanticization and erasure. Romanticization and erasure. By romanticization, we mean that American history is told from white perspectives and that episodes that honor white people are emphasized. By erasure, we mean that American history is not told from black perspectives and that episodes that dishonor white people are de-emphasized. So there's evidence of theft of truth in our country and community. While there are many monuments that honor the Confederacy, which was built by white supremacist theft, there are a few monuments that honor the black people who were stolen from. The Equal Justice Initiatives, whose calendars we have in the lobby, and I, I invite you all to take one. EJI reports that in America, there are about 2,000 Confederate monuments. And there were about 4,000 racial terror lynchings from about 1870 to about 1950. In Arkansas, there are about 50 Confederate monuments and there were about 500 racial terror lynchings. So we've talked about theft of truth, romanticization, and erasure. White supremacy has stolen wealth by extraction and obstruction. Extraction and obstruction. By extraction, we mean that when black people have built wealth, it has been taken from them by white supremacist systems. Slavery is the best example. Enslaved black people not only built wealth for white people, they were wealth of white people. In 1860, enslaved black people were the single greatest asset in the American economy, worth more 
than all other assets combined. By obstruction, we mean that help given to white people to build wealth, the Homestead Act and FHA-backed mortgages, for example, has not been given to black people. And when black people have built wealth, it has been met, met with white violence. The massacres of black people in Elaine, Arkansas in 1919, in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, for example. And there is evidence of theft of wealth in our country and community. In both America and Arkansas, the average black household has about 60% of the income of the average white household. Okay, so we've, talking about, we've talked about theft of truth, theft of wealth, theft of power. White supremacy has stolen personal and political power. By personal, we mean that the agency of black people over their bodies has been suppressed by white supremacist systems, such as slavery, Jim Crow, and the new Jim Crow mass incarceration. By political, we mean that the agency of black people over the body politic has also been suppressed by white supremacist systems. And, and there's evidence of theft of power in our country and community. America has the highest incarceration rate in the world. And black people are five times as likely as white people to be incarcerated in our country. Arkansas has the fifth highest incarceration rate in the country, and black people are four times as likely as white people to be incarcerated in our state. So a question for your table fellowships, your small groups later is, what evidence of white supremacist theft do you see in our community. Third, the white American church has been complicit in white supremacy. By complicit, we mean that the white American church has actively and passively supported white supremacist systems. In this context, the first ethic of the church is restitution. We are culpable for the theft of white supremacy, and like Zacchaeus in Luke 19, we are called to return what we have stolen. The second ethic of the church is restoration. Like the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, we're called to restore to wholeness those who have been stolen from. So a question for your table fellowships later is, do you see the ethics of restitution and restoration in Luke 10 and 19? I invite you to read and reflect on those chapters. So fourth and finally for our, our theory part, okay? Reparations. Reparations is the ethical Christian response to the theft of white supremacy. Said differently, reparations is the fruit that the white American church must bear in keeping with repentance for the theft of white supremacy. Reparations returns truth, wealth, and power to black people by naming lies and telling the truth, enabling black wealth and sharing white wealth, and enabling and submitting to black leadership. So a question for your table fellowships later is, if you or you all practice reparations, what do you hope or fear will happen, okay? So that's, that's all for theory. Y'all still with me? Y'all still here? Okay. Yeah, this is some heavy stuff. Um, 
y'all read the Chronicles of Narnia? Aslan isn't safe, but he's good. That's how I feel about this conversation. Uh, it's not safe, but it's good. It's not easy, uh, but it's good. So let's, let's talk about practice. And, and I want to talk about how I have practiced reparations with others in Northwest Arkansas in three parts. So we did theory in four parts. We're going to do practice in three parts. Past, present, future. Okay? So first, the past. Uh, in the spring of 2020, I met Greg Thompson, who co-wrote uh, the book Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. So I met Greg in the spring of 2020, and he helped me understand the theory of reparations, which I've just outlined for you all briefly. Then in the summer of 2020, you all may remember George Floyd died. He was murdered. My pastor started NWA United, a group of black and white pastors who committed to be united in the gospel against racism for justice. There was a press conference, t-shirts, and a website, nwaunited.org. Then in the fall of 2020, I met Jamar Tisby, who helped me practice reparations. Jamar started the Witness Foundation to fund black Christian leaders. I started Reparations Now NWA to support black Christian leaders in Northwest Arkansas by sponsoring fellows from Northwest Arkansas with the Witness Foundation. I asked the white pastors who joined NWA United and other white people to give to the Witness Foundation. Some said yes, and we raised $100,000 for two fellows from Northwest Arkansas, who you may know, Joy McGowan and Monique Jones, who each received $50,000. So that's, that's the past, okay? Second, the present. In 2022, as Betty mentioned, I started the R Word podcast and events to talk about reparations in the church in Northwest Arkansas. In the summer of 2022, I interviewed Greg Thompson, Jamar Tisby, and local black leaders on the podcast. In the fall of 2022, Jamar spoke at the Fayetteville Public Library, and in the spring of 2023, Greg spoke at the library, and we continued the podcast, which I am co-hosting with a friend that you may know, Dustin McGowan. We're releasing one episode per month, and we're hosting two events this fall. Uh, reading and discussion of the book Reparations in September and October, hosted by your own, Betty Wilton. And a viewing and discussion of the film The Big Payback, which is about reparations. More information about the R Word podcast and events is on our website, reparationsnownwa.com. Third, the future. In 2023, I gathered a small group of local black and white leaders to talk about how we want to practice reparations in Northwest Arkansas. Unfortunately, we cannot continue to work with the Witness Foundation because they're in a season of change as an organization, and they're not funding black Christian leaders now. So in 2024, I want Reparations Now NWA to be a movement of people working for racial healing and reparations in Northwest Arkansas. I want us to repair truth by educating white people and churches in Northwest Arkansas, to repair wealth 
by investing in black-led nonprofits in Northwest Arkansas, and to repair power by asking local black leaders to control or direct our investments. Okay, so we've done who I am, theory, practice, how you all at Grace can join us. So Greg has said that reparations requires both a debt to be repaid and a world to be repaired. So this means that there are many ways to practice reparations. And importantly, my way is a way, not the way, to practice reparations. But with that said, I see two ways that you all at Grace can join us, one now and the other later. So the first way is to educate yourselves by listening to the R Word podcast, attending the R Word events, and scheduling a reparations conversation with me if you want to. I always enjoy talking about reparations in the church with folks. Okay? So that's the first way. Uh, and you can do that now. Admittedly, there are other ways to educate yourself. But that's, that's one way. Uh, the R Word podcast and events. The second way, later, is to invest in... Um, what I believe we will call the Zacchaeus Fund, named for Zacchaeus, who returned what he had stolen. Invest in the Zacchaeus Fund for black-led nonprofits in Northwest Arkansas. I want to work with others to start the fund next year in 2024, at which time we will ask white people and churches to give. What, what would it look like to educate? Um, and these are leaders, largely you know, sort of your followers, the people over whom you have influence, what would it look like to educate them such that this investment made sense to them? And if they're a pastor, you know, preferably that pastor kept their job, <laughs> you know? So, so how, do we, how do we as a community live into an alternative to what you just described, which is... Um, we as white people talk about racial reconciliation and how we want to be friends with black people. But we don't really talk about racial justice. We don't really talk about systems. We don't really talk about mass incarceration. We don't really talk about the black-white wealth gap. We have something to say when somebody gets shot. That's about it. Because all of that... Um, really low risk for us. It really doesn't cost me anything to do any of that. It's really low benefit for, well, really anybody, black, white, or whomever. Howard Thurman in Jesus and the Disinherited said the, the price, well, I'll just paraphrase him, I won't quote him. He says, too often the price that the Christian movement has paid for security and respectability is that they're necessarily on the side of the strong against the weak. And so I called the podcast The R Word because a church that I was a part of a few years ago, when I asked them to give to the Witness Foundation, they said yes. But they said, please don't associate us publicly with the words reparations or white supremacy. 
And some may say that's just semantics because they gave the money. But I don't, I don't believe that. I, I believe that they did a cost-benefit analysis for their institution. And they chose respectability and security over love of neighbor. And that's wicked. And I don't hate them. Sean and I were talking about, you know, God loved us when we hated him. He calls us to love our enemies. And some of my Christian brothers are not my friends anymore. But God help me, I love them. <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but for me, you know, in the last few years, I've experienced some feelings of sort of homelessness, you know, as a, as a person and as a Christian. And like, man, it's a crazy world we're living in, you know? And uh, I have felt alone, um, especially as I left the church that I was a part of. And, you know, some of my friends got pushed out of that boat. I jumped out. Um, and then I found myself sort of swimming in the water in northwest Arkansas. And I looked around and was like, man, there's some good people here. You know? And uh, I'm not alone. And, I mean, God is with me. But, but they're, they're, like, they're, there are people who are with me, too. Um, and so just, just by way of having me here, I, I feel that um, welcomed by you all, that I, that I belong here. Right? Um, and so, I'm, so, so bless you. Thank you. I think that's enough. On the next episode of the Beloved Community Podcast from the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council and KUAF. Chris and Lindsay sit down with a man well-known in Fayetteville as an educator, leader, friend, mentor, and advocate, Dr. John Colbert. You know, we did the inclusion Yes. Way back. Yes. <laughs> when I was a little teacher, before inclusion even became, you know, mandatory, yes. I yes. started that at Base Elementary. Yes. Because again, I wanted what was best for all students, and I know my students could succeed with that additional help that I knew that I could provide and, and my fellow teachers could provide. Reflecting on a life of service with Dr. John Colbert on the next episode of The Beloved Community. You can listen for free at KUAF.com or subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Now it's come the time in our podcast where our guest for today, Betty Wilton. Hello. And I get to discuss what we heard and what we hope from Lowell's sermon at Grace Church. Uh, the I will start for us, and the thing that um, I heard is Lowell discussing the parable of the Good Samaritan as well as Jesus's interactions with Zacchaeus as frameworks for what reparations looks like. Uh, a lot of conversations that I tend to have, Betty, uh, people are uh, unknowledgeable about what restorative justice is and what it looks like, even though it's a very prominent theme in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so Lowell talking about um, these two narratives in the New Testament as frameworks for restorative justice, mm -hmm. and restorative justice being how do we move towards things that are broken and to pursue to make them whole, 
Um, I think those two stories are very um, informative for us to be able to understand what that looks like. Um, first, in the Good Samaritan, like I, I love the idea of a person whom did not cause the harm mm. being the person who pursues restorative justice on behalf of the man who was harmed. Mm. And because I think a lot of times we kind of we, we divorce ourselves from obligation to people. Mm. And we think that the only um, way that I should move to restore is if I am the one who directly harmed. Mm-hmm. And what we see in that parable is that that's not what matters. What matters is, have you seen harm, Mm -hmm. right? Have you seen people um, hurt? And what are you going to do about it, Mm -hmm. right? And this is the response, right, to the Pharisees and the scribes who asked Jesus as a way to kind of justify themselves, like, who is my neighbor? Mm -hmm. And and Jesus says, basically, everyone who is in need is your neighbor. And uh, I think that's important for us because we don't have the right to absolve ourselves uh, ourselves of responsibility, mm-hmm. absolve ourselves from um, caring for people who are in need, mm-hmm. right? And even if you can try to blame them for being in their own position, that is that does not alleviate you from the 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 responsibility of caring. And so, like I think that's very important. He does this at a, a, a large cost to himself, yeah. right? He not only pays for the immediate needs there Mm -hmm. but he says i'm going to come back through Mm -hmm. right and when i return anything any any debt that he's incurred over that time i will pay that as well yeah which is beautiful because he it is not just to treat his wounds in the moment Mm -hmm. but what does it take to bring the man back to wholeness Mm -hmm. right back to where he was before the harm was done to him right that's a beautiful picture and then the the secondly is zacchaeus all right and I, I love the placement of Zacchaeus in Scripture because it comes it comes right on the back end of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, mm-hmm. right? And uh, you know you have this one man who is you know self righteous and he, you know he looks down at the the tax collector, and then the next two like personal conversations that Jesus has are with one the rich young ruler, mm-hmm. right? Who is an archetype for. Mm-hmm. Right. The Pharisee in the parable. Yeah. Right. Who Jesus tells them, like, if you really want to s- see the kingdom of heaven. Right. Give all that you have away. Mm-hmm. Right. And f- give it to the poor and follow me. Right. And it says that he put his head down and he, he wept because he had much. He didn't want to divorce himself from his his power, his privilege, all the, these things that he had accumulated in life. Yeah. Right. And then we have Zacchaeus a man who gets his money by unjust means, mm-hmm. right? He works for the empire. But not only that, but he takes more than what he should take, yeah. right? And among his people, he's seen as a sellout, one who has sided with power against his own people, mm-hmm. right? And Jesus sees this man, has dinner with him, and Zacchaeus has changed. It's beautiful, right? And we know that Zacchaeus has changed because on the on the back end of the dinner, we don't know what Jesus said in the conversation with him over dinner, mm-hmm. but we know that Zacchaeus has changed because what does he do? He moved towards repair, yeah. right? He says he's going to give half of everything away, and anyone that he's defrauded, yeah. right? Anything one that he's stolen from, he's going to give them four times what was taken, yeah. right? And so he is making amends. He says it's not just enough for me to say I believe in Jesus, mm-hmm. I want to follow him, and that I'm sorry, right? Yeah. But he knows that before 
that experience he had done a lot of harm and that if he really believes and wants to follow the person in whom he just had dinner with, he'll move to make those things right. And I think that's, that's important in our society because we think believing in Jesus absolves us of the, the need to do justice. Mm-hmm. No, but it amplifies that, mm-hmm. right? Because you have committed yourself to an ethic, yeah. a way of living, a way of behaving, right? And even more so, right, you should feel the duty, mm-hmm. right, to live as he lived and to respond in that way. And so, and, and so a lot of people who are Christians, you know, claim to be that without having this heart of moving towards, mm-hmm. right, the weak and the vulnerable and the hurting, yeah. nor have the, the value, the sense of that when I do wrong, whether it is before Jesus or after Jesus, right, that I have a burden, mm-hmm. right, to make that right, yeah. right, to restore those things, right, that this is the idea of restorative justice in the mm-hmm. scripture that is, you know, that's the first primary thing that stood out to me. Yeah. How about you, Betty? Yeah, no, absolutely. I... I think kind of going off of that, just having Lowell come and talk to our congregation and just calling it out as it is, right? (laughs) To be direct in this call to white churches to participate in reparations. There's not a lot of, I mean, it's very rare that you go into a congregation and have white supremacy called out from the front of the pulpit. So in this journey of both the Good Samaritan and Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus and the Good Samaritan are both transformed through those interactions. And so I think a lot of times when we're talking about reparations, it feels like, especially from the perspective of white people, that it's this attack that we're going to have to give and give and give, and that it's and so walls come up and people feel really defensive and, and guarded. And I think that looking at it from the lens of those stories of the Good Samaritan and Zacchaeus and seeing it as a call for transformation in relationships, for transformation and repair of our world, that we are called as believers, and like you said earlier, that there is a cost, that there is by giving we're not only repairing relationships and like they say in um in their book on reparations this repair of truth wealth and power that in in doing so and in making a repaired world or participating in the reparation of the world we are mutually transformed and getting closer to who God has called us to be we're hurting from not participating in this. You know, like all sides of the part, like of the conversation are not better for not participating. Like there is hope and there is possibility for better life, for a better way of doing things by participating in this. And so I think it's a really hopeful conversation. It's a hard conversation. And it does cost something, but there's a lot of hope um, in the conversation as well. So, yeah, that's, I think, what I heard. That's really good, Betty. Uh, I think that connects to the thought of what what I hope. Um, my hope in light of this is that people 
particularly white Christians, um, would move beyond the cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. that arises when you begin to hear about these issues, yeah. especially if it's for the first time. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I think about cognitive dissonance as, you know, you know, an, an example is, you know, you hear the story when you're a kid that, you know, George Washington had wooden teeth. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, man, that's strange. That's weird. People don't have wooden teeth now. And then yeah. you learn more about it and you realize that his teeth weren't wooden. They were human teeth, mm. but not from himself, but from other humans. And then you're like, oh, that's weird. That's really weird. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's a different time. Mm-hmm. And then you realize that they weren't just human teeth, but they were the teeth of slaves. Mm. And um, and you're like, man, how, what do I what do I do with this person now? And so normally when you have cognitive dissonance, you can, you can do, you know, two things. The first and often and sadly the most common is that you can suppress what you've heard mm-hmm. in a way to cope and adapt yeah. to that truth, but not in a, in a healthy way, mm-hmm. right? You move away from the truth, right, and dig your heels in and say, it's not trustworthy, it's not real, that's, you know, it doesn't, you know, mean anything to me, and, mm-hmm. you know, you... Uh, reject whatever it is that you heard um and a part of that is the stuckness too right Mm -hmm. you might not get to the full rejection but you you just you just don't move you become a person who's a neutral Mm -hmm. and or secondly that you 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 transcend the cognitive dissonance right you allow truth to transform the way that you think and function and i think that's a lot of what um, we are in need of now because there's a lot of difficult truths that we have to um, parse in our own minds and hearts mm-hmm. about what they mean and how do I live into those. And my hope for white Christians is that they would faithfully move forward into that, mm-hmm. right, in the same ways that the Good Samaritan and Zacchaeus do, yeah. right? That the Good Samaritan he can come to a moment of, of dissonance yeah. to where he can examine the man and say, this is too much work for me, mm-hmm. right? This is such an inconvenience to me. Yeah. These are hard truths. I don't even know who put this man here or if they're still on the road or if they're going to hurt me by helping him, all these kinds of things mm-hmm. that can become barriers to actually doing what's right, Yeah. right? And then, you know, or, you know, Zacchaeus who can, you know, for many ways can try to justify himself. Well, I was just doing my job. Right. Right. I was all these kinds of excuses that can come out. Yeah. Or, you know, he can the the attempt to just do the minimum. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I heard, mm-hmm. you know, what you had to say. Yeah. Yeah. And I paid back what was owed, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, the accumulative harm, mm-hmm. the perpetuated harm of being robbed from. I'm not going to do anything about that. Yeah. You know, you had time and room to, to figure something out for yourself mm-hmm. or something like that. And so how do we examine the whole of ourselves, mm. right? Our tendencies to try to justify, yeah. right, you know, ourselves mm-hmm. and to try to give our, ourselves outs yeah. or loopholes to actually not do what is right, what is just, and to actually move towards people who are, who are hurting, yeah. right, um, in light of harm that has been done, real harm, mm-hmm. right, not imaginary, right, not theoretical, yeah. harm, right? But real tangible mm-hmm. experience harm. Yeah. And um and to do something about that. When the easy thing is to opt out. 
Yeah. Right? It's to do what the what the Pharisees are trying to do with Jesus when he gives them the two great commandments to love God and love neighbor. Mm-hmm. Is to say, who who should I love? Yeah. Right? And to move it into a philosophical debate. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, in hopes if it goes the way that I want it do I want it to, I actually have to do nothing yeah. because I've trapped it mm-hmm. in argument and debate, right? And it yeah. never funnels down into tangible, pragmatic, you know, behavior. Yeah. And so we, we need to move away from that and move towards people in real tangible ways. Yeah. Right. And uh as we see demonstrated in, in the scripture. Yeah. Absolutely. And I have you know, I hope that too. I, I hope that we can sit in the dissonance. I, and I think it takes a lot of self-compassion to sit there. And I think a lot of people hope for a quick fix um, that it'll just, okay, I can read this book and, I, and then it's over and I'm, I'm good and I can go about my daily life. But to sit in the dissonance and to lament. And I don't think that the Western church, especially, well, the white Western church, has lost its practice of lament. Um, so we don't know how to do that well. We don't know how to sit in that tension for a long time. Mm-hmm. We know how to say a quick prayer um, to show up to a vigil and then go home and then move on um, because it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. and it takes something from us. You know, it, it, it takes a lot of energy and time mm-hmm. to lament well and to look at this history, to look at the truths of people's experiences and and what happened um, in our history and to sit in that and let it hurt you know because it doesn't feel good to hear all of that (laughs) you know it's hard truths in it Um, and it's like what you said that that truth is transformational and we can either choose to keep it at an arm's distance, to fight it off, to get caught in the debates and the he said, she said, and whatever it is, you know, there's so many ways to fight nowadays. But, or we can choose to walk alongside each other in the white church and wrestle with this truth of what happened and what that means for us today. And so I think that doing that, knowing that you don't have to do that journey alone or, um, yeah, that you just don't have to do it alone and that we can have grace and compassion for each other as we are on this journey of, of being transformed by truth. And we can have mercy for one another because there's, and that's our job. That is the job of the white church. That's not the job of the black community um, to have to hold our hands and walk us through that journey. That's something that we need to do ourselves and to take the ownership and the responsibility of doing. Um, and yeah, 
Yeah. I think that's really good, Betty. Um, the thought that we have to sit and lament and to process. It's very important, right, as you pursue justice. Mm-hmm. Right? In my mind, lament leads to, leads to hope. Mm-hmm. Right? And if you don't spend the time in the hard stuff, you'll never, you know, cultivate yeah. what is needed to do the real work. Mm-hmm. Right? And and I think on the back end of that is is also the thought that that you do that and you move and you work not until you feel good, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right, but until things are made right, mm-hmm. right? And I think a lot of times as we, as I examine people who, who do work, right, they, it's, it's enough to, to alleviate guilt, yeah. right? It's my participation, mm-hmm. right? I don't feel bad or guilty or ashamed anymore, yeah. right? And if, if those are the drivers for you doing the work, you know, ultimately you're not going to do the work the right way or yeah. the way it needs to be done. But am I committed enough to the work that it transcends how I feel mm. and what I think about myself? But until things are made right, right, right living outside of me mm-hmm. is the hope. And yeah. so, you know, that is that is my call for anyone who is listening, who is who is asking the question, what do I do? Yeah. Right. Move, work until things are made right. Yeah. Right. Or, or, and, um, you know, that's going to require you to have some a lot of days where you're going to want to opt out because yeah. it's going to be, you know, much easier to mm-hmm. not do than to do. Yeah. Right. But, you know, what what am I compelled? What vision am I compelled by? Is it this hopeful vision that yeah. has come out of lament and sadness and wrestling with? the truth Mm -hmm. right or is it something else that is more privatized within myself and so you know the call outside of ourselves becomes more compelling Mm -hmm. right because we are ultimately called right to a transcendent relationship with God and with one another but it's been good. Good conversation. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much, Betty, Thanks for, for joining us. Me. Yeah. It's been very fun. And for anybody listening and wanting to do something soon or immediate and start this participation and this journey of uncomfortable participation in reparations, we're doing a six-week book study um, on the book Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair by Duke Kwan and Gregory Thompson um, this fall. So it'll be six weeks through every Thursday in September, starting September 7th at the Squire Jehagen Center. Um, It will be from six to eight. And so it'll be a facilitated discussion about what reparations looks like for the white church in northwest arkansas and um, we're going to dig into different topics of um, different parts of history as america as a whole but also into local history and see what we can do and how we can um, participate well in this in this call to repair so join us Look forward to it. Thank you so much for that invitation. Please participate if you can. If you're in the Northwest Arkansas area, please come and participate at Squire Jehagen 6 to 8. Mm-hmm. Um, we are done for today, but please um, check back with us next month as we will be interviewing uh, Robert P. Jones, the author of White Too Long. Mm.
apathetic. I'm complicit in the prejudice, it's automatic. I take advantage being born into my demographic.